Hello and welcome to episode 201, all about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, being the 201st part of That's What I'm Tolkien About. My name is Mary Clay. If that's too complicated for you, just call me MC. I've been experiencing the world of J.R.R. Tolkien for the first time, and right now I'm doing whatever I want to, including learning about the friendship between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. It's been many years coming, and I'm glad I finally did it. Joining us this week is Marilyn R. Pakila. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm just, I'm quite delighted to be here and looking forward to it. I'm so delighted that you reached out. I uh, sent out a tweet several weeks ago saying, does anyone, uh, are there like scholars? Are there people who study both of these guys? Like who, who would be a good person to have on? And our good friends over at the Lorehounds must have seen it and they I guess, pass it on to you. And then you emailed me and I was like, this is perfect because they, uh, I, I had them on this podcast and then they invited me on their podcast. And I think in both of those conversations, your name came up of, of things that you had said in the past or things that you had brought up. So you come highly recommended. <laughs> well, that's lovely to know. It's true that when I taught my course on Tolkien for 35 years off and on at Colby College, Lewis often came up because I view Tolkien's life as one of the sources for his works. And Lewis was absolutely a critical piece of Tolkien's life and vice versa. So I'm hoping we can get into that tonight. Yeah. Before we do that, though, do you want to tell me and the listeners about how you got into Lord of the Rings, uh, whether it was the Lord of the Rings books, whether it was the Hobbit book, whether it was, you know, movies from the, the 70s and 80s? What was uh, how did you get introduced to it? Well, I read it first 55 years ago. So movies weren't even born or thought of it. No, that's not true. But anyway, there were no movies at that point or anything of that nature. But it's fun because it's sort of a C.S. Lewis Tolkien kind of an event. My very dearest friend and heart sister um, told me we'd only met each other for about a, a year, but it was the same kind of friendship that Lewis describes of what? You like that kind of stuff too? And so <laughs> we bonded initially over Star Trek, uh, the original Star Trek and when she found out that I hadn't read Tolkien, she said, you absolutely have to read this. And so I did. And she was right. And then I read The Hobbit. Um, and I waited with everybody else until 1977 when Silmarillion came out. And I said, what is this? But I trusted Tolkien. So I kept reading and eventually it just got deep into me. And when I uh, took the job at Colby, I was told that if I wanted to, I could teach Jan Plan courses, which is a short course, four weeks. And I had just taken, in my previous job, I had audited a course on Tolkien, um, and I thought, hmm, that might be fun. So that's when I started, and uh, I framed it around the concept of Tolkien's sources, different literary texts, but also I included Tolkien's life as a source for his writings. Mm -hmm. And so from that point on, I taught it for about eight no, seven years. And then I started introducing other courses like uh, Religious Responses to Harry Potter, uh, The Religion of Contemporary Witchcraft, and Women in Myth and Fairy Tale. So lots of different... Very cool. Yeah, lots of different stuff there. Lots of cool stuff that I wish uh, you had been teaching when I was uh, in college. <laughs> I wish those courses were at my college. That would have been really like right up my alley. Listeners, several years ago, it's so crazy that I can say several, I guess. Um, I was given a book called Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, The Gift of Friendship by Colin 
uh, Durias. Durias, uh, I will leave a link in the episode description if anyone is curious. But I was given this as a gift for my one year podcast anniversary by Valerie and Casey Winters, wonderful classic friends of the podcast. Um, and I put it on my shelf because I was like, I don't want to touch it until I'm done reading Tolkien because I don't want to accidentally, I didn't know what would be discussed in this. I didn't know what would be talked about. So I didn't want to spoil anything. Um, and so I finally picked it up and was like, okay, great. Now I can, this is, this rarely happens where I have a book sitting on my TBR shelf for years and then I actually pick it up eventually. <laughs> so um Glad to have finally read this, although it was, I think this book in particular was a bit too smart for me. It went into a lot about um, the like philosophy and theology that Tolkien and particularly C.S. Lewis believed and their journeys through these different ways of thinking and how they viewed the world. And it was a lot of stuff, a lot of concepts that I just was not familiar with. I tried my hardest to understand it, but uh, uh, I think I, I paid more attention to the like hard facts of like, J.R. Tolkien was born on, you know, January 3rd. So <laughs> maybe maybe I'll ask you this, because this is, I think, something that a lot of people have heard about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And this was not mentioned in the book. And I kind of <coughs> wish that it had gone into the more like interesting areas of their friendships. But there's this, I don't know, rumor that they went to they went to parties dressed as polar bears. Like they went to non-costume <laughs> parties dressed up as polar bears together. Do you know anything about this? Do you know if this is true at all? I've never heard that directed at Lewis, but it is true that Tolkien once put on a, a polar bear skin rug or something. And I don't know if he was walking down the street in Oxford or maybe he did go to a party. I don't know all the details, but Tolkien had that kind of sense of humor. He loved to, in his later years, if he felt he wasn't treated properly by an inattentive clerk, um, when he was reaching out to pay them, he would include his false teeth and his handful of loose change to offer <laughs> <the> clerk. Yeah. <laughs> he said of himself that he had a very simple sense of humor, which most people found rather annoying. <laughs> That's... So going going to a party dressed as a polar bear is, you know, fairly low-key for Tolkien's humor. Yeah, wouldn't be yeah unheard of, necessarily. An another thing he did <laughs> okay, was to good. dress up as a uh, uh, Viking berserker and, and chase the postman down the street one day with an axe. Oh, man, to be J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien's neighbor. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, that would have been great. Um, so anyway, yeah, that is the book that I read to prepare for this episode, but I'm sure that there is a lot of stuff that this book did not include. There's, you know, we're going to be having an hour long conversation, so there's also going to be a lot of stuff that we won't get into. So if you're listening and you're interested in C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, um, you know, there's obviously many more things that you can go out and do. This is not meant to be a comprehensive coverage of both of their lives. We would be here, I think, for quite some time. That would be probably its own podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll start, you know, at the, this is how I always, I'm like, how do I start these things with these big topics? And, and Julie Andrews sings in my head, start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. So J.R.R. Tolkien was born in 1892, and C.S. Lewis was born in 1898, so Lewis is a few years younger than him. Um, they both had, uh, their, their childhoods were both, they're both very different, but I would say they both went through, they went through different 
difficulties. So we, oh, and I should I should also add that I think maybe a year and a half ago, I did an episode on the Tolkien bio- biopic, oh, yeah. which movies always take liberties. There were, of course, some things that were inaccurate or, you know, mm-hmm. embellished for the screen. But we did also talk a lot more about, especially Tolkien's early life. So um, if you want to hear more details about that, um, that's another episode that you can go back and listen to. But um yeah, so his uh, we know that his early life was very tragic. His father died when he was very young after his mother and baby brother had left Africa, which is where they were living at the time, to move to England. And uh, while they were there, uh, his mother and her sister converted to Catholicism. And so that kind of left them with uh, kind of like in the outs with the Tolkien in-laws, with his father's family. And so they were impoverished for uh, a time. And through this period in his life, that is how the Tolkien family came to meet Father Francis Morgan through one of the schools that the boys attended. And so he kind of started looking after them and especially more so became their guardian when their mother died. Um, And for a while, they... Or for a little bit, I guess I should say, they did try to live with their aunt, their mother's sister, but it was a small house. It wasn't working out. And so that's when the boys were moved into the lodging house where J.R.R. Tolkien famously met Edith, his, you know, future, his future wife. So very, you know, very tragic circumstances uh, growing up impoverished, uh, growing up always moving around. He bounced between schools, too, because at one point he received a scholarship to go to a different school. Lewis, uh, on the other hand, had a bit more of a um, stable upbringing uh, for for the first couple years of his life. Um, he specifically remembers uh, and talks about in in this book it mentions the house that he lived in and uh, it made like a huge impression on him and it was kind of where like his imagination first started to flourish and where he was introduced to all these books in his life um his older brother he was very close with um helped him to kind of like explore and start seeing the beauty in the world um by the way the CS stands for Clive Staples. Right. <laughs> and when he was three years old, mm-hmm. he was insisting that people call him Jack. Right. Which I understand <laughs> when you have a name like Clive Staples. <laughs> yes, it's, it's reminiscent of those of you who have read uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It starts off saying there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. <laughs> and I think that we're meant to read that um, Eustace was told was uh, Lewis's understanding of what he was like as a kid, and based on some of the things that you know we you can read about in his schooling and so forth. I think he was probably right. The young Lewis was something of a prig. Yeah, <laughs> that's really funny. That little note in uh, I haven't read any of the Narnia books aside from. Uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this is how if you've ever heard people you know, refer to C.S. Lewis as Jack or say that, oh, well, Tolkien's called him Jack. This is why. This is where that came from. It's like, how do you get Jack from C.S. or Clive or whatever? He insisted on it when he was little. When he was 
a little older, still a child. His mother became suddenly sick with cancer, and I believe she passed pretty quickly um, after they tried treating it. And he says he said that all happiness and stability in his life went when she passed. That's right. Uh, his uh, his father became very distant from him, and so they kind of had a very estranged relationship for the rest of his life. And this is also what started Tolkien down this uh, path where he eventually becomes an atheist in his early in his early life. I think you mean Lewis. Um, I mean, Lew- who did, I, did I say Tolkien? Did. Yeah, Lewis. <laughs> Tolkien, famously not an atheist. <laughs> very famously not, yes. Um, that's probably going to happen multiple times in this episode. Good catch. Yes, Lewis was the one who, um, because of these kind of like tragic circumstances and this very like sudden shock in his life, started, you know, becoming an atheist. He was sent to uh, a boarding school. Like, um, I looked up the dates and like, literally a month after his mother passed, he was sent to this boarding school. That's, so you know, so tragic and awful that, you know, he's like forced to like, move on so quickly and throw thrust into this like different cer- these different circumstances with new people also from what i understand uh the boarding school was had slightly abusive methods and it was closed <laughs> it was closed because the headmaster was declared insane oh god I, yeah the book didn't go into that jeez mm, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i think some of the harsher details were softened but yeah the other side of that is that albert his father his had lost his wife, but he had also not too long prior to that lost both his father and his brother. And he was just utterly bereft and bewildered and had no idea what to do with a nine-year-old boy at that point. Yeah. So there, there were some reasonable reasons for him to send Jack to boarding school. It's just a shame that, um, yeah, he insisted on sending both his sons to England because he wanted them to develop proper accents. And this was this was a big thing between the Du Bois and their father. They used to make fun of his accent. <laughs> After this school, he also kind of bounced around to other schools and institutions that the book said were for various health reasons. But it also said that he took up the habit of smoking and would hide it from his father. So it's implied that he so he had all these lung issues when he was young, but he also started smoking so you have to wonder how much those things go hand in hand that he was just you know hiding a smoking habit and being like oh yeah i'm sick <laughs> <laughs> that could be part of it but jack simply was not geared for what was then the british boys school public school system it just he hated sports um he was in most instances vastly smarter than his classmates of his own age and a lot that were older than he too and he didn't mind making a thing of it you know he didn't mind telling people that and of course that's no way to win friends and influence people and the sort of hierarchical uh systems that went on in the schools were very much not to his liking but he found his refuge and his escape in the library and as a retired mm-hmm. librarian i've always enjoyed that little factoid yeah i think uh in this book it's mentioned as like a house of books or like a house made of books or something like that mm-hmm. that he really exactly use that as you know a method of escapism and we go on to learn throughout his life that he is uh he was described as like a very eccentric reader and he read like very widely and read everything (laughs) which i respect and and love about about him uh that he was like yeah i'll read any book it doesn't have to 
necessarily be, you know, about my field of interest. It doesn't necessarily have to be about, you know, like a character or something that I would be personally interested in. I just want to read to read. But the book should be prepared to be ruthlessly dissected and analyzed and critiqued because that was also (laughs) what he did. (laughs) Then uh, during uh, World War One, making sure I'm saying the right number there. <laughs> um, they both served in World War I. Uh, Tolkien served very briefly uh, and returned home with trench fever. This book kind of put to rest these ideas and these rumors that Tolkien was like writing Lord of the Rings in the trenches of the Battle of the Somme. And that wasn't necessarily the case. There were definitely, you know, inspirations and, you know, experiences that he took from the war. Mm -hmm. Um, In particular, the Dead Marshes is something that Mm -hmm. this book called out um, as being a, you know, inspirational thing. Um, But he wasn't writing, you know, The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings in, you know, in the war. What he was Um, writing were the very earliest bits of what became the Silmarillion. Yeah. And that's what I found fascinating is that it was these very, uh, the kind of like lesser known stories of Tolkien, these very Mm -hmm. like deep lore stories that came out, you know, chronologically in publishing order last that he was working on all the way at the very beginning. Yeah. Particularly the voyage of Eorandil, um, which came to him from the Christ poem by Kindwolf. Um, that was one of the very earliest things that he wrote, actually before he left for the Somme. But when he came back from the Somme, he started writing things that were relevant to his war experience. And the fall of Gondolin was one of those. If you read the early versions, you see his description of mechanized dragons that would be able to sort of curl up and down hills and so forth. And they were carrying whole battalions of orcs inside them. And you read this and you realize that really sounds like a tank. Mm-hmm. So he was definitely bringing in a lot of his influence. For for listeners who are interested in that, I cannot recommend highly enough John Garth's book, Tolkien and the Great War. It's so insightful. And he talks a lot, again, about friendship of Tolkien's three closest friends from the TCBS and how they all experienced the war, what happened to them. He did a lot of research with the letters and it's it's very moving, but also really quite fascinating. Lewis... He had like just turned 18 when the war was uh, kind of like, I think maybe a year in, I think he had like just turned 18. So he enlisted in the army and roomed with someone named Patty Moore. Ah, yes. And he, this was so fascinating. Okay, so he uh, befriends this, uh, this, you know, his roommate, and they make a promise that, uh, you know, to look after each other's family in the war, uh, if one of them dies in the war. And Patty had a sister Maureen, and a mother that the book just always says Mrs. Moore, which you can just (laughs) imagine like the kind of person uh, that, that she was. And she, I believe, took her children and left their father from Ireland, maybe, yes. and moved them into England. So Patty, you know, her son, the oldest son, would have been the person looking after them in that situation. Um, and unfortunately, he did die in the war. And when Lewis returned home, uh, he had been wounded, not too severely, but, you know, wounded enough that he uh, returned home from the war. And he moved in with them. He kept that promise and he looked after them. Now, this is where (laughs) there's some interesting territories with the relationship between Lewis and Mrs. Moore. 
Um, it's never been confirmed what the nature of their relationship is. There was just a lot of speculation. There was a lot of stuff that when I Google searched it, there was some people saying, well, obviously it was this, but in hindsight, maybe it was this. But uh, on the surface, the the history will say that she was just a, you know, a mother figure, a devoted par- parental figure for Lewis who had lost his mother when he was very young. He had this estranged relationship with his father and I believe his father, yeah, his father died not too, not too much later as well. So, you know, not great relationships, you know, lasting relationships with his parents anymore, and was just devoted to keeping care, keeping, uh, looking after Mrs. Moore and her family. And he lived in their house. And there are all these stories that he just never stopped doing stuff. He was always like walking the dog or, you know, doing stuff for her. However, there are other people that speculate that they had some kind of a romantic relationship um, and and that Lewis might have looked for a sense of comfort in a person like her because of those, you know, parental issues. But uh, as I understand, there's no, you know, documented confirmation of of either one of those things. (laughs) Well, N.H. Wilson's biography of Lewis has a statement from the daughter, Maureen in his text in which she said that, yes, the relationship with Mrs. Moore was intimate. Oh, okay. Maureen coming in and sharing those details. (laughs) And Mrs. Moore's first name was Janie. Janie. And she was about the age that Lewis's mother was when she died. So I I think there's a whole complicated swirl of of emotions going on here. And and Lewis at this time in his life was really bad with emotions. his, His intellect was solid, but his imagination and his emotions were a turmoil. He also has, in various documented places, said that he had a very strong drive for sexuality and that it sometimes caused him difficulty. If you read the letters, wow. <laughs> if you read the letters between himself and his best friend, Arthur Greaves, who he didn't meet until a couple years before he went into the war, there's some fairly explicit and obvious statements that make it clear um, that he was, he was very full of <laughs> drive and juice and whatever you want to call it. So um, for the first years of, of their connection, I think it's pretty clear that this would have been an intimate relation now. How intimate it would be, who knows. All right, there you go. You heard it here first, listeners. <laughs> Not first, Not first. <laughs> probably last. <laughs> After the war, um, also a kind of a, a reminder as well for those that don't remember from previous conversations, Edith and Tolkien had been engaged and married uh, just before the war. So when he returned home from the war, um, they were, you know, already married. Tolkien and Lewis both started working at Oxford in 1925. So that is kind of when their, you know, circles started coming closer. And Lewis uh, talked about the, the first, like, interaction or introduction that he had to Tolkien where it was at like some kind of afternoon tea for the the English department and he went up to Tolkien afterwards because he had you know heard of him and asked him like all these questions and Tolkien basically gave like every wrong answer in Lewis's book and like he asked him about like what do you think of this author that was like secretly Lewis's favorite and Tolkien was like oh I don't care much for him and he asked him something about literature and Tolkien said literature is written for the amusement of men between 30 and 40 (laughs) which is so specific (laughs) 
No, this is all uh, new to me. I, I, this must be from, oh, really? from the little yeah. side of things because I've yeah. not. That's what's fun is seeing like the different right, right. perspectives of each other and meeting each other. Um, and he like concluded this, you know, diary entry um, about Tolkien and said, no harm in him only needs a smack or two. Yes. <laughs> yes. A, a pale, quiet, fluent chap. <laughs> Um, so it wasn't really until the, the next year and following years that they became closer and started to connect more. The first group that they really began to connect was a group called the Coal Biters. Um, you'll hear uh, throughout this episode a lot of these different groups. Uh, the, the Tolkien biopic was uh, heavily about the TCBS group that he was in with his, you know, like high school and early college friends before the war. The yeah, so the coal biters is this other group that they were in. Um, and then coming up next was the main one that most people probably know about, which was the Inklings. But yeah, the, the coal biters is where they started to have more discussions together. They would go on walks, they would go to each other's offices and continue their conversation after these meetings. Lewis said of Tolkien that he was the most unmanageable man in conversation I've ever met. <laughs> uh, and Tolkien would, he like he would... He would sit there and he would listen and he would talk with you, but he would apparently always turn it into being about what he was interested in at the time, regardless of what you were just talking about. That's a fairly common technique among scholars, I think. Yeah. <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Did, do you remember what the Colbaters were doing? Their whole intent was to read through in the original Old Icelandic all of the Icelandic oh, sagas. Yeah. And, oh, my. So and that crazy. was what drew in Lewis because Lewis had this love for what he called northernness and he and arthur greaves his close friend after warney discovered that they had this mutual love of the norse myths and so when he sat down and started reading these along with tolkien and all these other people he suddenly realized okay tolkien likes this stuff too and that became the point at which they connected mm -hmm. and would talk about things like ragnarok the, the twilight of the gods or or the death of balder the beautiful yeah that was the beginning and then um, from that grew the inkling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. During this period, Tolkien gave Lewis whatever the, the first version he had of the Lay of Luthien mm -hmm. to read. And Lewis, you know, came back to him the next day and said, that was uh, an evening of such delight and the personal interest of reading a friend's work had little to do with it. So he was so genuinely uh, in love with what Tolkien had written and was excited and supportive of him. This was really funny to to learn that uh, Lewis Lewis believed, I, or I guess had picked up by now, that whenever he shared his feedback with Tolkien, that he would either ignore it completely or he would start entirely over. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he was really worried about... Uh, coming through with his criticisms about this correctly because he was like this is really really great don't scrap it i don't want you to throw it away but i think you really have something here if you just you know work on you know these little bits here or if you keep workshopping it <laughs> does Darius describe the process that he used of pretending to be um a scholar who's discovered a new manuscript and is reading other interpretations of the manuscript. This was his way of sort of sliding in the criticism so that they might not sting quite so much. Um, <laughs> and he invented, I can't remember the exact names, but he invented different early scholars like 
Pumplestrick or uh, Stark or whoever. So, you know, these people read this section and said, oh, clearly this is an emendation from a later scholar who didn't have the original and didn't understand what it was supposed to be. And wouldn't it be nice if we had the actual original? Meaning, I don't like this passage quite as much. I don't think it fits with the rest. But rather than say that outright, he, he couched it in these very scholarly terms which Tolkien would Mm -hmm. recognize because that's the sort of thing they all did with manuscripts you know try to figure out what were the original what were the interpolations what were the mistranslations and so on and Tolkien found it very amusing um but he didn't take up any of Lewis's suggestions for the changes (laughs) (laughs) however he did rewrite some chunks of that Lewis had pointed to as being you know not top-notch or whatever. So it was kind of a nice compromise between ignoring him and starting all over again. Yeah. (laughs) By 1933 is when the Inklings had uh, really, you know, started up in earnest. Uh, I think we kind of have this impression that the it's like oh the inklings this was like the the literature group the book club that lewis and tolkien had well really it was it was really like lewis's group it was him and uh all of his friends kind of like gathered around him (laughs) and in particular Um, his brother warney who was very much a part of all this and often gets overlooked but warney was a scholar in his own right and did amazing historical research on um 17th century France. So he definitely earned his place there. He wasn't just making the tea. He was, you know, yeah. <laughs> he was a fellow scholar. And Those Lewis brothers know how to draw in a scholarly right, crowd. <laughs> right, right. I will say something that I did really love about this book is that each chapter kind of opened with uh, kind of like painting a scene of like, you know, setting mm. the stage for what was happening in this. And the Inklings chapter was about like, in walks a large, portly man who who is not dressed untidily and he is like loud and gregarious and he thinks he hears someone mention his name, uh, but he keeps going to the back of the room. And so it was kind of like, you know, setting the stage of uh, this group gathering once a week in this bar uh, that I believe is called the Eagle and the Child. Known colloquially as the Burden Baby. Okay, yeah. So if anyone ever wants to go on a Tolkien and Lewis pilgrimage. It's, It's an amazing space. It's absolutely beautiful. Unfortunately, right now it's closed for renovations. So after renovations, we'll all go there and meet up for a a pint. (laughs) Or you can go across the street to, uh, I think it's the White Hart, because they were renovating it at some point during the existence of the Inklings. And so they had to move across the street. They went to the White Hart. Right, 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 right. So, you know, we're just following in their footsteps. Yeah. Yep. Yep. (laughs) This is where I started to really get the impression that Lewis was more of the extroverted of of the two and Tolkien seemed to be more introverted. There's this really wonderful passage that Lewis wrote about friendship um, that I want to read. But basically, uh, anytime that like new people were brought into the group, it wasn't necessarily that Tolkien was jealous. I think it was just that he can Tolkien could only like give so much of his time or attention to one person. And so when Lewis was giving his time and attention to another person, it kind of like, he was like, well, I just won't talk to Lewis right now, rather than like, let me go talk to Lewis and that person. (laughs) Um, Whereas Lewis viewed friendship uh, kind of in a more the merrier type of a mindset. I'm trying to see if, oh, it says in his book, uh, The Four Loves. This is how he talks about friendship. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, 
side note, they have a uh, not currently as we were talking in the 1930s, uh, but they they have a friend in uh, their life, Charles Williams, who would suddenly pass um, and this kind of like left a huge hole in their group and uh, and and lose his friendship. Anyway, um, he says, now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth. Uh, so that I just thought like that was such a beautiful way to view friendship and seeing like, oh, like it's not that, you know, oh, I was here talking with my good friend Tollers, by the way, was uh, what he called Tolkien. And now you're coming in and interrupting us. He was he was always like, oh, great, you're here. Come sit down, join the conversation. What do you have to add to this that I wouldn't be able to add? The word I think is gregarious. Gregarious. Yes. yes. Lewis was very definitely a gregarious soul and uh, Tolkien was more reserved. Um, but there were other factors at play here, both in their personal relationship, but also um, the character of Charles Williams and so on and so on. But backing up a little bit, I'm thinking more of, of um, Lewis's return to Christianity. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which happened, Great, yeah. which happened in um, 1931. Yes. Yes. You're correct. During this period that he is connecting more with Tolkien he's growing in this friendship he's talking to more not just to Tolkien but talking to more of these different scholars that he's encountering through these different groups and everything um he begins to go on uh again you know in his childhood and through much of his teen years and early 20s he was an atheist and then uh he he has these very specific moments that he can't necessarily he can't point out like what it was about that moment necessarily but he just remembers like I was riding on a bus and I came to a a decision that there must be some kind of a ruling higher power out there um and so that was kind of his first journey back into Christianity. And then there was this other story about him and his brother uh, on a motorcycle going to the zoo, This, which sounds like a children's book, like C.S. <laughs> Lewis goes to the zoo. <laughs> the Lewis brothers go to the zoo. And he remembers like turning a corner and looking out at the countryside and uh, kind of making that full shift back into, uh, I believe it's... <sighs> Anglican what was his yes. what was his he returned to the Anglican communion Anglican yeah. okay but yeah Anglican Christianity he had started as you say an intellectual and atheist um completely in the the rational reason side of himself but he kept encountering these scholars like Tolkien um like Hugo Dyson uh, who were every bit as intellectual as he was, could hold themselves in an argument with him, and they were Christian. And for him at that point in his life, this made no sense because Christianity was not, quote unquote, rational to him. But he kept finding other people, including an atheist friend who one day said in casual conversation, you know, it's a rum thing, but could be that all that biblical stuff actually happened, that there really was somebody who died and rose again. And this really kind of scared him because why was this you know, atheist intellectual saying this. So he started his own study and readings and from a purely intellectual standpoint. And that eventually brought him to some form of what he called deism, i.e. belief, as you were saying, in some kind of larger power. Um, but he didn't understand 
wow, that connected with the Christian story, even though he was a great lover of story and particularly myth and particularly the Norse myths. And so these were the things that he shared with Tolkien. And it's also important to remember um, Lewis in his birth, you know, it was an Ulster Protestant. Tolkien was a Roman Catholic from a very early age. It's very hard for us to understand now what it was like for Catholics in incredibly Protestant England at that time. And Northern Ireland being Protestant, there were even more tensions. And so it was even more important for them to maintain this rigid, rigid stance against Catholicism. And so Lewis says in his biography, I was taught um, implicitly never to trust a Catholic and explicitly when I joined the English faculty, never to trust a philologist. And Tolkien was both of those things. Mm -hmm. So it's like chipping away at all his prejudices. So he was talking one night in 1931 in the Fellows Garden at Mudland College and talking about um, myth and subcreation. And Lewis says, I don't understand why the Christian story is relevant to us. I don't understand how it can help us any more than any other story, except as an example of a good man and a good skull and so forth. And Tolkien says, well, look, you don't ask that of the Norse myths. You don't approach them from that sort of logical, you know, reasonable kind of analysis. You are moved by them. You allow yourself to be moved by the mythic side, the romantic side, the emotional side. And in Christianity, according to believing Christians, this is the myth that comes true. Because Lewis said, well, Myths are lies, even though they're shot through with silver. And Tolkien said, no, they're not lies. They are ways of telling about things that cannot be described with simple logic and reason. And we need both of these things in our lives. And Lewis says, oh, so you mean then that the Christian myth is not unlike the Norse myth. The only difference is it actually happened. Okay, now I begin to understand. It was after this conversation when he and Warney were going to the zoo that he wrote to Arthur Grieves back in Ireland, his friend, and said, you know, before, when we started off, I was a deist, but I wasn't a Christian. By the time we got to the zoo, I was a Christian. And don't ask me how or why or what that happened. But <laughs> that conversation with Tolkien and Dyson was instrumental in that shift. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the really key touchstones of this whole question of the friendship between Lewis yeah. and Tolkien and what it gave us. Definitely. Yeah, it's a huge part of, um, I mean, I think it's something that uh, we can all look at in the relationships in our lives and say, well, because of my relationship with this person, I am now like this, or mm -hmm. these things happen to me because I met this person and I wouldn't be the person I am today had I not known them. And even so, you know, Tolkien is still Tolkien. He really wanted Lewis to become a Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> Lewis was an Ulster Protestant. He was not going to become a Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that was one of the first of, of the sort of grit in the oyster, if you will, or, mm -hmm. or sand in the gears in their friendship. Um, you know, Tolkien kept hoping that Lewis would, would quote unquote, go all the way. In a sense, he brought Lewis back to Christianity, as it were. And then Lewis goes off and starts writing all these popular books about what it is to be a Christian and on and on and on. And he's like, yeah, okay, really? Plus, it brought him a lot of popularity and attention that nobody liked. He didn't like it. Warney didn't like it. The Englands didn't like it. You know, it, it kind of really broke into their lives together and yeah. often made a lot of fuss and nuisance for them. During this time in the Inklings, as it's kind of going through the 30s, moving closer to World War II, Lewis is writing more and more of these uh, of, of novels, short stories, scholarly papers. He's 
churning things out left and right. Um, a lot of Christian theology based things that uh, Tolkien, just like you were discussing, kind of started slowly resenting. Maybe not resenting isn't the right word, but disapproving. It might be. Um, of because he di- he didn't think it was right for Lewis to be kind of like writing all of these, I don't know, scholarly things about Christianity, like maybe he wasn't the right person to be doing those things. And I'm sure he also didn't agree 100% with Lewis's views on Christianity, since they have those different, um, different beliefs, uh, even though it is within the, you know, same religion. Well, I think what Lewis really contributed was an ability for people of intellect to enter the door of Christianity. Because that's how he came in. That was his big gift. He could approach it from an intellectual perspective and still have some sense of the emotional. For Tolkien, Tolkien's religion was deeply emotional to him because it was tied up with the memory of his mother and because Mm, of his other experiences. So it's like they were two halves of the whole. And often they could connect, but... There were also these, these you know, one might say significant differences in their approach. Yeah. And these are things that, as time goes on, do not necessarily go away. No, unfortunately. If anything, they, they the rift widens. But yeah. they do have their wonderful deal uh, of flipping a coin in 1936. Yes. Did you get that part? It's so much so fun. So fun. Um, so I think uh, by that point, Tolkien had written The Hobbit. Right. And I think, you know, the publishers were like, all right, we need The Hobbit too." <laughs> Where's the <laughs> sequel? He's like, <laughs> he's like uh, good question. Um, <laughs> hold that thought. Would you be interested in a bunch of disconnected lore stories from Middle Earth that I haven't necessarily completed? And they're like, no, we're not interested in that. You need to write a new story. So Tolkien is kind of... Uh, you know, struggling with that. And uh, Lewis, they were talking about um, Mary Shelley and how the and how Frankenstein came out because it was like a fun little contest that uh, friends had set between each other of let's write a horror story and let's scare each other. And she wrote Frankenstein because of that. And so they flipped a coin to write a space travel or a time travel story. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because if you like, if you know that Tolkien wrote Narnia and, and Lewis wrote, I mean, wait, reverse that (laughs) if you know that lewis wrote narnia and tolkien wrote lord of the rings you're like neither of those have anything to do with space so i could you know there is some time travel involved with narnia i guess but where is this leading (laughs) well you have to look at it as speculative fiction and actually at that point they called it scientifiction Oh, that's it, was, it was still very new. I mean, we had H.G. Wells and so forth, but they, they still had this ideas of you could use the scientific approach to say a lot of things that you wanted to say. And so that's what Lewis did with his Ransom trilogy, uh, the Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and that hit his strength. Whereas Tolkien got the time travel. And so that resulted in The Lost Road, which was a father-son story. But this was the first time that he began to write about what eventually became Numenor. yeah. And so even that was drawn into the whole legendarium. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it it got him thinking in the mindset that would 
lead to like the greater structure of the Silmarillion and, and Lord of the Rings that, oh, these stories that I've been writing about Luthien and Gondolin are things that happened in the history of this land. And now how can I kind of like connect it? How can we travel back to quote unquote travel back to these times, these old stories, these mm-hmm. old myths of this land and helping him kind of like frame these larger ideas into something more manageable and start structuring these things. And the Numenor story was specific to this time of 1936 because it's about a culture that was given this gift and gradually rejected it because they wanted to live forever and they have corrupt governments and they have they're taken over by this maniacal leader who insists on human sacrifice. And it just point by point, you can see the resonances with with what was happening in Europe in 1936 with the rise of Hitler. Mm -hmm. And so some of it is his most clearly connected to actual historical events, even in terms of talking about um, skin color as being indicative of, of, you know, quote unquote, good and bad races because of what was happening um, with the Hitler concept of the perfect human being and and the Aryan race and all that sort of thing. So it was a new feature of the legendarium. The the Silmarillion had already been through written in a very messy form, but it was still its own existent thing. Now we have the fall of Numenor, which is the pivot point Mm -hmm. between the first age and the third age. Yeah, it gets it gets the people from the past in Middle Earth over to Middle Earth as we know it. Um, or I guess no, they weren't in Middle Earth. They were in just Arda because they weren't on Middle Earth yet. Well, anyway. no, they were. They were in between the two. They were in between Valinor yeah. and Middle Earth. And Middle Earth, and yeah. And when... so, yeah, it kind of gets you from from point A to point B right. to then you know uh, catapult the rest of the story and start you know right. a, a, a launching point to to bring the rest of the story and be like, well, how did Bilbo get into all of this? <laughs> how does Bilbo connect to the fall of Gondolin? You know, these and, kinds of things. And why does Faramir have everybody turn and face west for a moment of silence before they sit down to eat? Well, mm. they're remembering to Numenor that was, to Tol Erisea that is, and to that which is beyond and will ever be. That's a moment that I completely like I don't even remember that happening and I kid you not we just I I just did like an hour and a half long episode about Faramir (laughs) and I am I'm like so sad that we didn't bring that up because what a what a noble moment what a class act guy he's the best he's yeah (laughs) I I heard that episode it was a great episode he's definitely (laughs) definitely the one yeah, so out of this this kind of like competition that they had between the two, Lewis wrote Out of the Silent Planet, which is something that I did not know he wrote. I didn't know that he went into, you know, early territories of sci-fi. And that's really uh that's really cool and that's really fascinating. Um, from what I understand, uh he kind of wrote about, you know, the idea of aliens in a in a different way whereas any other like alien stories at this point viewed them more as like oh yeah these are the bad guys and these are the villains right and he was writing about them more from a sense of like no they are also there are people on this planet what is like let's dive deeper into what these alien beings are and he invented a term now meaning not more than just simply a sentient being but you know ensouled beings, if you will. I have a little excerpt here from a letter that Tolkien wrote to Stanley Unwin, his publisher, about 
um, the, the out right, of the silent I can't planet. I think, um, yeah, he had written to his publisher and said, he wrote this story. Can you do it? And the publisher said no uh, or something like that. But yes, please read the letter. The first publisher turned it down, but then he... That was it. Okay. Tolkien writes, Mr. C.S. Lewis tells me that you have allowed him to submit to you out of the Silent Planet. I read it, of course, and I have since heard it pass a rather different test, that of being read aloud to our local club, which goes in for reading things short and long aloud. It proved an exciting serial and was highly approved. But of course, we are all rather like-minded. It is only by an odd accident that the hero is a philologist, one point in which he resembles me, and has your name. The hero's name is um, Unwin Ransom. And this is to Stanley Unwin. The latter detail could, I am sure, be altered. I do not believe it has any special significance. We originally meant each to write an excursionary thriller, a space journey and a time journey, mine, each discovering myth. But the space journey has been finished, and the time journey remains, owing to my slowness and uncertainty, only a fragment, as you know. Slow, slowness and uncertainty. <laughs> so here's another example of what friendship led him to do, and that was in uh, 1938. Mm. So eventually, though... Tolkien begins the painstaking work on Lord of the Rings. <laughs> 1937. He is writing to, I, I believe it was his publisher at that point, but he says something about he was writing the first couple chapters of Lord of the Rings. Um, and all of a sudden, black writers made an unexpected appearance. Yes. And that said to him that, oh, this story is going to have a much darker tone, I think because I need to figure out who these black writers are. And it's just so funny to me, the idea of writing a book and then something makes an unexpected ex uh, appearance. It's like, well, you're the one writing it. You wrote it. It's not that unexpected. <laughs> um, but I can see also how in the creative process of you're just writing to write and you're letting your brain wander. And then all of a sudden you think of something totally new and it spins the story in a completely different direction than just, you know, Bilbo and his magic ring and his birthday party. Well, and again, this is a great illustration of the difference between how their two minds worked. You have reason and you have imagination. Reason mm. sits down, plots things out point by point, goes from A to Z, and, and then writes from the outline or whatever. And I don't mean to be facile about it. I mean, I'm sure it's, you know, it's a lengthy process and creativity is certainly involved. The imagination starts off with an image or something and then says so then what happens next yeah. and Tolkien had the kind of imagination in which characters would just suddenly say and do things that he certainly didn't have in mind and people would show up and he would bring in characters from you know the the child a, a doll that the kids had or you know the early names of the hobbits were named after Priscilla Tolkien's his daughter's family of stuffed mm -hmm. teddy bears and uh, you know so there's all this wild mix of sources that Tolkien drew upon. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't organized. It wasn't tidy. It, it seemingly random. And yet the germ of the story was always there to drive them forward to the next piece and the next piece and the mm -hmm. next piece and the next piece. During this time, Tolkien was reading and asking for advice or something with, with the inklings, bringing the, the pieces of Lord of the Rings that he was working on to his friends. And then, uh, Apparently one day, though, one of the members spoke <laughs> up and put a veto on it because supposedly he was sick of talking about elves, Yes, which made me laugh so much that uh, and 
you know, he, he started in 1937 and the Inklings went on through the the 40s. So like it's it's several years now that he's probably bringing the same stuff back to them. He, as you said, you know, slowness on an uncertainty in his own words to describe himself. Um, so I can see how one of the inkling, how the inklings might be like, okay, we need to, until you move this along, until, you know, we have to put a, a, a pause on this. We can't talk anymore about elves. You well, have to write your story. What happened was they kept hearing excerpts as they were finished, but only when that particular member was not present. <laughs> and also, uh, long about that time, he started sending... Um, chapters off to Christopher Tolkien, his son, um, as a sort of a serial because Christopher was in the RAF and he was um, in what was then, that then become South Africa for training and so forth. So Mm -hmm. um, Christopher really became one of his most important audiences. But uh, Jack was as well, as we can talk about now or later. Yeah, so that's kind of how Lewis became such an important person for encouragement uh, as as Tolkien was finishing and trying to write Lord of the Rings was because, you know, there were those days where he couldn't talk about it with the Inklings. Right. Then World War II happens. And I was so fascinated to learn that Lewis hosted several children, uh, evacuee children during the war at their house, the Kilns. Mm -hmm. One day he got an idea to write a story about four children who are sent to live with a professor in the country and then uh, before you know it, he chugs out all these Narnia books <laughs> and he publishes the seven Narnia books from 1950 to 1956. And meanwhile, Tolkien has been writing Lord of the Rings since 1937 and has still like yet to publish it. <laughs> well, actually, so that- <laughs> the... the um- the Fellowship of the Ring was published in 1954. Published, yeah, it was kind of in the in the middle of of Lewis, yeah, doing publishing the Narnia books. Right. But um, and the actual yeah. writing period was from 1938 um, through 1949. And the only reason I have those dates is because it's right in front of me. So don't of, uh, don't get impressed. Lord of the Rings, <laughs> right? That was okay. that was yeah. the that was the first draft, beginning to end, and then he had to write it all backward, you know, revise backwards and then forwards. Revise and- it, and also he was still kind of hoping that he would finish the Silmarillion right. and be able to publish it alongside Lord of the Rings. So that was another reason for why he kind of kept pushing things back and delaying things and, you know, taking his time putting these things together. And then again, like I said, meanwhile, Lewis is, he's been writing, you know, up till now, he's written all of these other books um, and all of these other works of Christian theology. He's done this, you know, sci-fi, uh, the sci-fi story, um, and then he produces Narnia, which Tolkien did not like. He, the first several chapters that Lewis gave to him, uh, Tolkien did not like. Um, yes, in uh, 1949, Lewis began reading uh, Lion, Witch, and World to the Inklings, and Tolkien disliked it. And this is from um, Humphrey Carpenter's superb biography. He says, it really won't do. I mean to say, nymphs and their ways, the love life of a fawn. <laughs> and it the the world building was so radically different. Yeah. And Tolkien just couldn't it it really didn't meet with the the with philosophy. His standards. <laughs> no, no, it's not just standards, it's his philosophy of 
of subcreation, as he called it. This was his lifelong theory. He wrote a poem about it. It was his explanation for why creatures create. It's because we are the creatures of the creator God. And so the subcreation had to be consistent within it. And for him to have Greek uh, demi-deities with Father Christmas in the same book was just utterly absurd. Plus, Father Christmas didn't belong there. Because Christmas hadn't happened, because Christ didn't... He was very upset that Santa was in the story. (laughs) Right, right, right. And he says, um, this is in 1964, he wrote, It is sad that Narnia and all that part of C.S. Lewis's work should remain outside the range of my sympathy, as much of my work was outside of his. Um, And some people theorize that, as you were hinting at, that Tolkien was irritated that Lewis just sat down on a whim and whipped out all this stuff and yeah. <laughs> was, and what he had to plot and plot and plot, which, you know, may certainly be true. Tolkien was human, but he also had these. But the same thing to remember is he had copies of Narnia on his shelves. He gave some to a niece. Um, he knew that children would love them. So just because he himself didn't like them didn't yeah. mean that he trash talked it or panned it or anything. And, and that's what's really great about their friendship and their their working friendship that uh they were still able to say like well i don't like it but clearly other people do so he's not doing he's not necessarily doing something wrong he's still you know a a really excellent writer and and creative and Mm -hmm. i'm glad to be able to work with him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he also was at least i got the impression that he was kind of he was disappointed in Lewis for choosing a children's story format because so much of their uh, so much of their conversations and work together was about this idea of creating uh, fantasy and creating myth and stories for adult readers that Mm -hmm. this idea that there is an audience out there and there are stories that can be for adult audiences, not just like, oh, well, any old, you know, any any person of any age can enjoy this story, but like specifically we can make fantasy. I mean, it's the difference between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And right. The Hobbit is a fantasy, you know, story f- that children can enjoy. And even though, you know, I'm sure children can also enjoy Lord of the Rings, it's something that is much more enjoyable as an adult when you're mm-hmm. old enough to fully understand and take in everything that's happening. So he was kind of upset with Lewis that after all of this, he wrote a children's story, yeah. but Lewis just felt that this, he was like, look, sometimes a children's story is the right format and the right way mm-hmm. to convey an idea and a message. And that's what I wanted to do. I have this allegorical Christian story that I want to write. Right. And and it is allegory. <laughs> Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien, Lewis was a big fan of allegory. And Tolkien was not. And Tolkien was not. Yeah, just By another one he, of their huge differences. <laughs> he wrote allegories. I mean, Leaf by Nagel is clearly an allegory. But he did not like an allegory that says, you know, for Aslan substitute Christ, you know, A equals B. What he said was um, an allegory is the purpose domination of the author. Whereas applicability just means that you are free to make these connections yourself if you want to, but the author Mm -hmm. isn't insisting and beating you over the head with the fact that you have to make this connection. Lewis had this wonderful phrase about, you know, if, if we think about it, we can find a way to sneak Christianity past the watchful dragons that are trying to, you know, insist that no, this, you know, it has to be pure story, whatever that's supposed to mean. And so, yeah, it was clear that that's what he was wanting to do. And, um, 
he tried to insist that that wasn't really it, that what he was doing was, again, quote-unquote, applicability by imagining if you had a world in which animals were the primary creatures, how would it look if Christ came to that world? So I think Tolkien viewed the the um, existence of Jesus of Nazareth as a one-time event on this world um, and not something that would be replicated in other worlds. In other worlds, Right, yeah. and that God would find a way you know, maybe something completely different. But Lewis was wanting to instill this idea of <clears throat> these these basic experiences so that when children by chance ran across the Christian story, it would seem familiar. The irony is I've talked to a Jewish, a Jewish witch, who said that she <laughs> read and loved Narnia her whole life and had no idea that it was supposed to be about Christianity. Yeah, there's, yeah, some people are, I, I can understand how if you have, if you don't have a, uh, understanding of like quote-unquote the source material yes. you're not going to make those connections naturally you right know? right um but if you know already of these stories of these biblical stories they're probably going to pop up in your head of like hey this seems familiar <laughs> but you see for tolkien they were all also prefigured by the mythic tales of a dying and rising god and so you can look at gandalf's sacrifice and his fight with the balrog and his death and his return as a christ-like event Mm -hmm. But he's not Christ. He is not Christ yeah. for Middle Earth. That's the distinction that Tolkien made. And, you know, some people would yeah. say, well, it's a distinction without a difference. But and there's a lot of Christ-like figures. I mean, Tol uh, Frodo's sacrifice, you know, carrying the ring to Mount Doom and, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. By 1956, all of the Narnia books had been published. The Lord of the Rings was published in three parts between 1954 and 1955. I cannot imagine reading Two Towers in 1954 and waiting a year <laughs> for Return of the King to come out. I think it was Lewis's review that said, the suspense is cruel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they were kind of, you know, on their way towards fame, is, is a way to put it. Lewis was kind of already, you know, this he more famous was. figure. Yeah. But this really kind of like catapulted Tolkien into a different level that he and Edith, you know, by this time, their children were grown. They moved from Oxford uh, to the countryside to kind of like escape all of that. I can't remember if this was before or after, but uh, at one point, so what's happening in, in you know Lewis's life at this point, uh, he has been offered a chair position at Cambridge mm -hmm. and Tolkien and Lewis's brother Warren were adamantly trying to convince him to take it. Right. He turned it down and Lewis, I mean, uh, and Tolkien, I think, like wrote a letter to Cambridge and was like, why don't you ask him again? Do it this way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and they went and uh, he went and convinced Lewis to accept this position. Um, throughout their careers at Oxford, Tolkien had been, you know, taking all these different positions and chair positions and, you know, leads in different departments and stuff. But uh, and even though he always suggested Lewis for these types of positions, he was always looked over and Tolkien believed it was because there was this you know, these, uh, not prejudices, I don't know, there are just these like old ways of thinking at Oxford, and they kind of look down on people who wrote outside of their fields of study. And so Tolkien is, I mean, oh my, there I go again. Lewis is writing all of these kind of like eclectic stuff. There's a space story, there's a story about a talking lion, what's all of this? Um, and so he doesn't think that there is a, a future for him to advance at Oxford. So right. 
they convince him finally to take this position at Cambridge. And I think you can use the word prejudice. They were very prejudiced Mm. against popularizing. And that's exactly (laughs) what Lewis is doing. He was writing theology without any theological training. And he was writing specifically for uh, non-scholarly readers. And that just was going to diminish his cachet um, in, in the hallowed halls of Oxford, as it were. Yeah. But they were overlooking his incredibly erudite knowledge of literature, and particularly medieval Renaissance literature. And so when they did the chair at Cambridge, they pretty much designed it exactly for Lewis's mm. gifts and abilities. That also reminds me, something that I loved to read about was that Lewis... The reason he, um, so earlier I said that he kind of had a wide range of, of what he read. And that was because he didn't, he didn't believe necessarily that there were like good and bad books. Right. There are just books and there are certain ways of reading them. And it's what you take, it's what the reader takes away from the book that is important. Right. Um, and I think that's such a, uh, that's a really, um, kind of like ahead of his time way of viewing things that uh, even today, I think people can take that as a lesson of like, it doesn't matter if you think this is if one person says this is the worst movie I've ever seen. (laughs) If there's someone out there who is finding a way to find meaning or value in it, then to them, like, that's all that matters. You know, it's how how you view it and what you learn from it and take away from it. And you took a little pleasure in being an iconoclast and kind of yeah. you know <laughs> sticking it to authority that that was something of a lifelong uh, pleasure of his I think yeah during this point he started to correspond with a woman named Joy Davidman mm-hmm. uh, she was a divorced woman who moved from America with her two young sons and over time she and Lewis began to get closer and they started a relationship together I guess Tolkien knew that they were talking or they were friends. uh, And he was very upset that that Lewis was interacting in this way with a divorced woman. And so when eventually they got married, uh, and I think you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, the church at the time didn't recognize divorces. And so they had to have, you know, like their own different ceremony. Um, Tolkien didn't know that they were married (laughs) and like Lewis didn't tell them and so I think that's also a level of uh at this point in their lives of how uh separated they were from each other when obviously they're working together and in the same you know groups like the Inklings and they're not spending as much time with each other anymore and so that's just uh that's also just what happens in life your friendships grow apart as people have their relationships and values grow and, you know, change over the years. People just drift apart. And sometimes it's not, you know, this great big dramatic fight or a fallout. It, it just seemed that there were things that kind of separated them over time. Um, and and this, uh, this was one of them later in their lives. <laughs> well, Lewis didn't tell any of his colleagues about this, but he did introduced Joy Davidman as a friend. And okay, yeah. um, they were all kind of appalled because she was unlike anybody they'd ever known. She was culturally Jewish. She'd become an atheist and then a communist in her youth. Uh, she was divorced and she was every bit a New Yorker. <laughs> and they, they just didn't understand how could Lewis possibly, you know, bring this person into their circle. 
and it wasn't a question of romance. It, you know, it, it was friendship strictly as far as Lewis was concerned. With Joy, again, we've got more evidence now, and it seems that she was more purposeful. At any rate, she knew that she was in love with Lewis a long time before Lewis knew that he was in love with her. Mm. And they kind of hit a crisis point where the British government decided that Joy couldn't stay in the UK, but would have to return to the United States. And I'm not really clear on the details of why that was, but she was frantic because her husband had been an abusive alcoholic. He was now married to her cousin with whom they'd had an affair when she had come over to England with the boys. The boys were terrified about being forced to go back to him. And so Jack decided to marry her in a civil ceremony, which would give her British citizenship and Hmm. remove that threat. But it just kept happening that, and then so, well, why don't you move to Huntington? And so, you know, we'll be closer. And well, why don't, let me rent you the house. He paid for the boys' tuition. He's, Jack established this agape charity, and the vast majority of all of his proceeds from his writings and so forth went into this charity so that he made an awful lot of money, but he gave almost all of it away. And a lot of what he gave away, he was giving to support friends, including Joy Davidon. So nobody knew that they had this civil marriage going on. And then uh, within a year or two, she was diagnosed with cancer. And so it became clear that uh, she was not going to survive long. And all she wanted at that point was to die under the same roof as Jack. And by this time, he recognized how much he did love her because he knew he was facing her loss. And he asked his bishop, could we please, can you find a way to make an exception and be married? And the bishop said no. But then a pupil of his, or a friend, I can't remember which, I think it was a pupil, who was also an Anglican priest and who had a gift for healing, he asked him to come and lay hands on Joy to see if anything could be done and also asked, can you, in your conscience, find it in you to marry us? So in December, there was just this like two-line notice in the Times saying a marriage has been performed between you know, C.S. Lewis and Mrs. Joy Davidman, and they request no, you know, no notes, no flowers, no nothing. (laughs) And that was the first that anybody had heard, but, you know, Tolkien in particular. Um, And, you know, it was shocking to to all of them. But for them, for Joy and Lewis, it was a great source of delight because she started to heal. And they, Charles Williams had this concept of substitution where Jack had prayed that he'd be able to take on some of Joy's pain. And he developed osteoporosis, and he was losing bone, and Joy was producing bone. <laughs> so make of that what you will. But yeah. they, she had what was considered a miraculous recovery, and they had, um, I think it was about 18 months or so of just wonderful life together as mm-hmm. husband and wife. And finally, you know, all of Jack's concern about sexuality and emotion and creativity, and it was all allowed to flourish at last for a time yeah which is so sad because um then uh she she did still um die from cancer yeah. a couple of years yeah a couple of years afterwards yeah and she was uh she was 45 so she was she was very, very young, young. Very and, her, young. and her boys were young too it was two children yeah just two tragic. children just awful to imagine a couple of years later i think like there was still you know Lewis was still working and there were still writings that he was working on, but uh, he died in uh, 1963. Mm-hmm. In 1965, this is a very momentous uh, year for us Americans. 
An mm. unauthorized version of Lord of the Rings <laughs> was published in the United States due to a loophole in copyright law, which I would love to know what that loophole was. Seriously. <laughs> Good on that press for finding it. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think an author deserves to be paid for his work. Oh, yeah. Being paid. Or okay, her work. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That prompted Tolkien to... Uh, to to authorize a, a version for publication in the United States. And then uh, he also wrote some very snippy <laughs> things in that version about um, authorized versus unauthorized editions. <laughs> this is the only authorized version of this book. Anyone who approves of courtesy, at least, to living authors will publish this version and no other. <laughs> that's the that's the copy, the first copy that I had. I have that boilerplate on, on the back of my... my Three, yeah. three paperback books. And the other thing was by now he'd become so popular that every time a fan wrote a letter to him and he would write back, he would say, oh, by the way, there's this thing going on in the States. And if they were people from the States, he said, please, you know, don't buy the Ace version. You can buy the Valentine version. And his fans just picked that up and went to, they called it the war, the war of Middle Earth. <laughs> Ace books backed off and said, okay, when this run is done, we'll never make any more and we'll convey a certain percentage of profits to the author and you know please stop hating on us <laughs> because we're a very important i mean at that point they were and still are a very important publisher for for science fiction and fantasy but they kind of misread their author when they decided that you know they could do this and get away with it yeah definitely not get away with it as we know from previous discussions on the podcast uh lord of the rings became a very important uh a, a very important piece for uh, protests and counterculture movements uh, in the United States in the mm-hmm. 60s and the 70s. There were um, suddenly college students running around with badges that say Frodo lives and Gandalf for president. I've got a Frodo lives badge upstairs. It's not an original, <gasps> but I have it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I got because uh, I had a previous a previous guest who was the one who told me about the Frodo lives thing, and she said, "I I would like sell my my left arm to get like an original Frodo badge." She she was like, "Listeners, one of you out there has some has like a an uncle who has a box of stuff from college in the attic. Go through it and find me a badge." Well, my favorite story of that is I once had a first edition copy of the hobbit in my hands and it was quote unquote only four thousand dollars <laughs> now i had just moved to maine i had just started my job at colby college i was not making anything near enough money to afford that it might have well have been forty thousand dollars but golly i wish i'd taken out a loan <laughs> or done yeah. something to get this book because nowadays people would just groan about oh my gosh it was only four thousand dollars ah I don't know. I think you made the correct financial decision. <laughs> I made the correct financial decision for myself at the time. I mean, as, yeah, as you've time. been talking about in some of your podcasts, I was just starting the whole adulting thing and, uh, <laughs> you know, had to be very careful. Yeah. By 1970, Edith had slowly declined in her health. She had, um, I think it was arthritis was yeah. really um, taking a toll on her. And uh, she died. uh, There was a very sudden health complication that she went into the hospital for and then died um, shortly after that in 1971. Tolkien moved back to Oxford very briefly because he was like, I don't 
want to be alone out here in our beautiful country home. There's no point in being here without her. Um, so he moved back to Oxford and had like, I forget like what the housing was or whatever that he, he worked for. Merton College offered him in a huge honor, which was uh, rooms in Merton College as an honorary fellow. Which oh, okay. meant that he yeah. had, you know, he had the apartment, he had room for his books, he had two servants to help take care of him. He could eat his meals, most of his meals, anytime he wanted in the dining hall. It was it was a fabulous arrangement. Plus, he was around people. And, you know, for his children, that had to have been a reassurance to know that yeah. there were people yeah. looking in on him every day. And, you know, he was basically in the place that he could love best. He could drive to visit Edith's grave every Sunday because it was right nearby. It was a wonderful way of honoring and supporting him at the end of his life that yeah. Martin College gave to him. Yeah. And then um, in 1973, mm-hmm. he, uh, he I, I think it was also another uh, kind of like sudden health complication that it was gastric, hospitalized him. Gastric and then, um, uh, gastritis. Something, yeah. yeah. And then, um, yeah, and then so he passed away in 1973. And uh, that is a very quick... I don't know, overview of the, <laughs> the lives of uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and how they intertwined, how they were similar, how they were different. But uh, mostly, desp- despite all of their, their differences um, and despite, you know, by the end of their life that they, they weren't as close uh, as friends as they were when they were younger, they still took immense inspiration from each other. They um, they received a lot of encouragement from each other, and we would not have the the books and worlds that we have today, I think, if neither of these people had existed in the other's life. Can, can I read some letters that he wrote about yes, Jack's please. death? Um, the first one is to his daughter Priscilla, <clears throat> and he says, So far I have felt the normal feelings of a man of my age, like an old tree that is losing all its leaves one by one. This feels like an axe blow near the root. Very sad that we should have been so separated in the last years, but our time of close communion endured in memory for both of us. So that was to his daughter Priscilla. He wrote something of a different tone to his son, Michael. And I want to back up just a little bit to talk about Charles Williams, because Mm -hmm. you read the wonderful thing that Lewis had to say about, you know, the more of the merrier in terms of friendships. And Tolkien just didn't feel that way because he could not feel an affinity to a lot of Williams' beliefs. Williams was something of an occultist. Uh, He was a Christian, but he had some very unorthodox ideas that troubled Tolkien. He also had not a very good relationship with women, I have to say. So he's something of of a... suspect figure. He wrote a lot about Arthurian stuff. His style of of writing was very florid and so forth. And Lewis was just entranced with him. And Tolkien talked about, you know, Lewis and his enthusiasms and so forth. He enjoyed the company of of Charles Williams, but just could not feel a fellow feeling with him and in his writings. And he felt that Lewis, that Williams's influence on Lewis was not a good one. And that was one of the real beginning points of the fraction between the two of them. Mm-hmm. This is what he writes to his son, Michael, um, you know, within months of, of Lewis's death. I'm sorry that I not answered your letters sooner, but Jack Lewis's death on the 22nd has preoccupied me. It is also involving me in some correspondence, as many people still regard me as one of his intimates. Alas, that ceased to be some 10 years ago. So this is 1963, so we're talking around 53. We were separated first by the sudden apparition of Charles Williams, and then by his marriage, of which he never even told me. I learned of it long after the event. But we owed a great debt to the other. 
and that tie with the deep affection that it begot remains. He was a great man of whom the cold-blooded official obituaries only scraped the surface, in places with injustice. How little truth there may be in literary appraisals one may learn from them, since they were written while he was still alive. And then he goes on to describe the details that Lewis only met Williams in 39, and Williams had died by 45. The space travel trilogy ascribed to the influence of Williams was basically foreign to Williams' kind of imagination. It was planned years before when we decided to divide, he was to do space travel. So it's almost as though he felt, you know, this project that the two of them had. Yeah, it's like, we came up with this. Was and then it taken over. A, a you thing. Yeah. Right. Tolkien's letters are interesting because he might say almost contradictory things, depending on who he's writing to. Yeah. But I think that's probably... I can, I can see, you know, him not wanting to worry or concern his his daughter with these kinds of things but maybe right. his son he can be more open or honest with and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and you know that's just um that that's like the hard fact about life is that with death and with with grief that brings up a lot of complicated emotions and memories right right so um yeah that's not um necessarily i think surprising that a man as you know complex as tolkien would have gone into those and you know examined them and he said he did like williams on a personal level but he says we had nothing to say to one another at deeper or higher levels i doubt if he had ever read anything of mine than available i had read or heard a good deal of his work but found it wholly alien and sometimes very distasteful Occasionally ridiculous. This is perfectly true as a general statement, but is not intended as a criticism of Williams. Rather, it is an exhibition of my own limits of sympathy. And of course, in so large a range of work, I found lines, passages, scenes, and thoughts that I found striking, but I remain entirely unmoved. Lewis was bowled over. But Lewis was a very impressionable man, and this was abetted by his great generosity and capacity for friendship. So I think Tolkien is trying to be honest. He's, he's you know, self-examination because people kept coming at him saying, oh, you were Lewis's friend and all this and that other thing. And he's trying to, for himself, uncover the story of their friendship and why it had, you know, dissipated so much and cooled off. Um, but then he finishes by saying, the unpayable debt that I owe to him was not influence as it is ordinarily understood, but sheer encouragement. He was for long my only audience. Only from him did I ever get the idea that my stuff could be more than a private hobby. Hmm. But for his interest and unceasing eagerness for more, I should never have brought The Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. Lovely. Lo- I think lovely words to, to end our conversation on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm... it's fair to say that even as if Tolkien hadn't had Lewis, we wouldn't have Lord of the Rings. If Lewis hadn't had Tolkien, mm-hmm. we never would have gotten Narnia. Yeah, or, I, never I think, is a strong um, word, but it's, you know, unlikely because yeah. Tolkien was instrumental in Lewis's return to Christianity. Exactly. Yeah. He there, There's a lot of things that Lewis wouldn't have ever written had he not gone on um, that, you know, religious journey that mm-hmm. had a lot to do with, with knowing Tolkien. Well, Marilyn, thank you so much for joining us um, to discuss these two very interesting men. Oh, I do want to share these like two random factoids that I learned in the book that I feel like could come up in a trivia night one day, (laughs) uh, you know, bar trivia or something. So you never know. The first is that Tolkien's first job was working on the W section of the dictionary. (laughs) The Oxford English Dictionary. Yes. Yes. Uh, So he worked on the W's. And then Lewis died the same day that JFK was assassinated. Yes. So 
Those are two very random trivia pieces that you never know you might need, but (laughs) it could make, you know, the difference between your team winning. So if you ever win trivia because of what we shared here, let me know. Um, Definitely. Marilyn, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Do you have any social media? Do you have any projects that you're working on that you want to share? Well, I am on Facebook and um, I'm on a bunch of Discord lists. Mostly right now I'm working with the Lorehands um, doing different um, guest hosting, but also I'm co-hosting a podcast called of the Book Nook on Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea series. And I'd really like to to get that out there because I think Ursula Le Guin is not as well known as I would like generally, but I think her science fiction is better known than her fantasy. And Earthsea is just an extraordinary series. So I'm really happy to be doing that. I do occasionally do Silmarillion stories with the Lorehounds. Um, I contributed to the first season reviews of the uh, Rings of Power. So I'm hoping I might show up again in that in a future yeah. date. <laughs> and I'm even thinking of a few podcast projects of my own, but those are still just in the very early stages of, of oh, I know what thought that's like. <laughs> and development. So yes, you, I may come to you for, for suggestions and advice. But Oh boy, I'm not the right person for suggestions and advice because it took me months to uh, come up with a name for my next podcast. So, <laughs> Well, the names I've got already, I, I'll... Oh, well, that's good. That's I'll, I'll say that, you know, I... I how can I possibly compare myself to the professor? But like him, I can come up with chapter <laughs> titles easily. I can come up with podcast titles easily. It's it's all the work subsequent to, to that. How to fill it, yeah. <laughs> right. That's um, That takes the time and the energy and the thought and all of that. Yeah. So. And I do have a website. It's uh, through Colby College. It's basically a website of, of my recent publications. Um, so perhaps you can put the link in the show notes. Sure. Yeah, I will leave links to all of that in the episode description. So if any of that sounds interesting to you listeners, uh, make sure to go check it out, um, especially if you enjoyed this episode you know, you'll get more of Marilyn in those places. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about's cover art is by Vaishan Brandon. You can support him on Instagram at Vaishan Designs. You can get merch for That's What I'm Talking About by going to tpublic.com slash user slash pod. You can follow the podcast on social media at TolkienAboutPod. And you can follow me on Twitter and TikTok at MCWhatsUp and on Instagram at MCTurnDownForWhat. If you want to support the podcast, you can become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash TolkienAboutPod to explore the different levels of support that are available. I appreciate all of my patrons who have been here for such a long time. You are a wonderful group of people. This week in particular, we are thanking our sponsor, Sean. Sean, thank you for your continued support of the podcast. That means so much to me. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you. And one more thing, in case you missed it, there was a pretty big announcement that was made in this past weekend's Second Breakfast episode. So make sure to go listen to that so you know what is happening with the future of this podcast. Uh, Well, thank you again for joining us. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, I think I'll just restate what I said. Um, This was an amazing friendship. And if we hadn't had Lewis, we wouldn't have Lord of the Rings, possibly. And if we hadn't had Tolkien, possibly, we wouldn't have had Narnia. So yeah, this is what friends do for one another. And that's what I'm talking about. Mm